Good evening, everybody, and a big thank you to St. Paul's Cathedral College, and a warm welcome to you all this evening. Thank you very much for coming. Just to introduce myself, my name is Clem Hutton-Mills, and I am a lay reader at St. Mary's Primrose Hill, and a lay canon here at St. Paul's Cathedral, where I have the honour and pleasure of serving on the chapter or the main board. We are very excited to have you all here. But first, regrettably, I'm very sorry to say 
that the rumours are true. Paula Gooder can't be here this evening as she has tested positive for COVID. And so she sends her apologies. Our warmest thanks, therefore, to Dr. Williams for carrying on alone. I'm sure you'll agree, in the case of Brad Williams, more is more. <laughs> I will introduce him more formally in a moment, but for those of you who have not been at one of our events before, let me explain very quickly how it all works. So in a moment, Dr. Williams will talk about Mary in the Bible and our faith. And during the evening, there'll also be more wonderful music from the Cathedral Consort. We will also be taking your questions for Rome to answer in the last part of the evening. So, if you have a question, please write it on the back of your programme and hold it up to be collected. We will collect questions until about 7.30. And please do keep them brief and legible. And easy. <laughs> We're also going to be taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag MySpiritRejoices. So if you would like to send us your question through your mobile, just type in your question and include that hashtag MySpiritRejoices and we will find it. Your questions then come up to me at the laptop and I'll put them to Rowan and finish it at 8 o'clock. Now the money bit. We're delighted to be able to offer these evenings free of charge. And all the thanks for all of you who donated online when you registered. It really helps us to keep these evenings open to all. There will also be a closing collection this evening. And if you're able and would like to, we would be very grateful if you would make a donation towards the cost of this program. And now, just in case anyone here is wondering who this is, let me please introduce Dr. Rowan Williams, formerly Archbishop of Canterbury. He was then for 10 years Master of Magdalene College, Cambridge a very distinguished poet and theologian. He has now moved back to native Wales and it seems to be as busy and in demand as ever. All the thanks to him for coming back to St Paul's this evening. And so would you please join in welcoming Dr. Rowanims. Thank you very much indeed, Clem, and thank you all for being here. Thanks to the Cathedral for their welcome and for providing this opportunity of reflecting together. No thanks at all 
to the COVID virus. I had been looking forward to learning from Paula, as I always do. So I'm sorry it's just me this evening, and I will endeavour to supply some of the enormous insight that Paula always gives in her expositions of the New Testament. We've just been listening to Benjamin Britten's wonderful setting of a medieval poem about Mary, one that is so fair and bright, velud maris stella, like the star of the sea, brighter than the day is bright, parens et puella, a birth giver and a maiden. It's a text that is very typical of the Middle Ages, especially the Western Middle Ages. A text that shows how fascinated people were in the Middle Ages by paradoxes. And Mary, it seems, was the most paradoxical subject people thought about apart from the very life of God as God, because God being one and three, of course, is just a bit of a paradox. But Mary, the virgin birth giver, Mary, the mother of the one who is actually her maker. There's a glorious passage in Dante's Paradiso, where St. Bernard gives voice to a wonderful hymn in praise of the Virgin Mary, beginning, Virgine Madre, Filia del Tuo Filio, Virgin Mother, Daughter of Your Son. The Middle Ages, sometimes thought about as dogmatic and unimaginative, were in fact a period of immense intellectual adventurousness and excitement. And people loved those paradoxes, prayed with them, and sang about them, as we've heard. But of course, during the Middle Ages, you also see the development of devotion to Mary which at times seems to crowd out or overshadow the Christian focus on her son. Which is why at the Reformation, there is so often a strong reaction against medieval devotion to Mary and against the shrines and images that represented that devotion. Those of you who, like myself, may be regular visitors to Walsingham will be aware of the ravages of that reaction in the 16th century. But even in that century, and even among the reformers, there remains that sense that to speak about Mary 
is not just to speak about some eccentric outlying aspect of Christian faith. Bishop Hugh Latimer of Worcester, who was most emphatically a reformer and gave his life for that cause under Queen Mary, came up with what I think is a singularly beautiful image for Mary. He was involved in controversies about whether it was right to call Mary sinless, whether she had a special relationship of grace and purity to God, even before the birth of Christ. And Latimer, a very blunt-spoken person, said he didn't know about all that, but he did know that if you stuffed a bag full of sweet-smelling spices, the bag would smell wonderful. And he said, that's Mary. <laughs> it's a rather ungraceful image, you might say, <laughs> but also, to my mind, a rather beautiful one. Mary has the scent of Christ. Mary has been that close to the mountain of spices that is the grace of Christ. But of course, the fundamental question that so many were raising in the 16th century was, how did we get to this level of devotion and imagination around the figure of Mary when the Bible doesn't seem to have very much to say about her. And so what I'd like to do first this evening is to say a little bit about what Paula was going to talk about so much more effectively, which is Mary in the New Testament, and move on from there. It's the Gospel of St. Luke that tells us most about Mary. And most of what it tells us is in the first couple of chapters, of course. And that's rather significant. Because at the very beginning of St. Luke's Gospel, St. Luke is writing in a very complex and ingenious way to give us what I sometimes think of as a split-screen effect or a double-exposure photograph. He's talking about more than one thing at once. Let's take the most obvious way this comes through. When Luke has written his introduction to the Gospel story, his letter to his ideal reader, Theophilus. He begins his story about the old priest Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, with the words, in the days of Herod the Great. And then, later on in the story, when he's introducing the birth of Jesus, he tells us, that an order went out from the Emperor Augustus. And at the beginning of the third chapter, when he's just about to take us into the story, 
of the baptism of Jesus, he says all this happened when Tiberius was the Roman emperor, and Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests, and, after a few more details, Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. Who on earth Lysanias was and where Abilene was has been a subject of considerable puzzlement to readers ever since, but the point is clear enough. At the beginning of his gospel, Luke is saying, I'm going to locate this story against the backdrop of global history. But that global history, the history of the Herods and Augustuses and Lysanias's, that history matters because it's framing the really important events which Herod and Augustus and Lysanias had absolutely no idea about. So the first way in which Luke is working in those early chapters of his gospel is to turn some of our values and expectations upside down. What seems to be important is actually marginal or background. Sorry, what seems to be, yes, what seems to be important is marginal and background. What seems to be marginal is foreground. A childless old priest on his rounds in the temple. A teenage peasant woman in occupied territory. Another elderly couple hanging around the temple in Jerusalem. An eccentric prophet in the wilderness of Judea. The real story of the human race is about these people, not the others. So that's the first bit of double exposure that Luke is giving us, bringing to the foreground those in whom the transfiguring work of God is likely to be going on. And of course, it's a theme that Luke will return to again and again in his gospel with what he has to say about outcasts and Samaritans and women. The second way in which Luke does a sort of double exposure is in the language he uses. In these first chapters, Luke is writing in the style of the Hebrew scriptures. He writes in Greek, but it's a Greek that reads as if it were translated directly from Hebrew. And at point after point, you will find a phrase from Hebrew scripture being lifted up and incorporated into the story. And when we come to Luke's story about the visit of the angel to Mary, this is actually surprisingly clear. Everybody remembers, I'm sure, the words the angel speaks to Mary. 
not least because some of us say it several times a day, Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with you. Now, if you were an attentive reader of your Hebrew scripture, you might scratch your head and say, that sounds familiar. And turning to your scrolls, you would unroll them laboriously. You couldn't just look things up in the index in those days. Until you came to the sixth chapter of the book of Judges, where an angel appears to Gideon and says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. So, we have another paradox, another bit of double exposure. The angel is greeting Mary as if she were, like Gideon, a heroic figure who is going to deliver God's people from slavery and oppression. And instead of, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor, the angel says, the Lord is with you, you are favored among women. And just in case you haven't got the point yet, remember Gideon's first reaction is extremely skeptical. If the Lord is with us, why is everything so awful? And Mary likewise says, how can this be? How can the Lord be with me? So Luke is very deliberately milking the story from Hebrew scripture to present the figure of Mary as like those ancient heroes of Israel. He's already done a bit of this in chapter one. There are so many stories in the Old Testament about aged saintly figures who are childless, Abraham being the most obvious one. And when the priest Zechariah in the temple objects to the angel that he and his wife are too old to bear children, everyone reading it will have picked up the echo of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis. It doesn't stop there. We've already heard that John the Baptist, the son of the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, is going to spend his time in the desert with the Holy Spirit of God descending on him. And once again, back in the book of Judges, in Judges 11 and Judges 13, we read about how the Spirit of God descends on the great heroes of ancient Israel. And likewise, the angel tells Mary, the Spirit of God is about to descend upon her. So perhaps you see what I mean by talking about these two kinds of double exposure. There's the double exposure of the apparently marginal and unimportant set against the people who think they are central and important in the story. There's the double exposure of these ancient narratives about liberators of God's people 
suddenly applied to a rather inarticulate teenage girl in a northern village. Luke is, to use a phrase from a famous philosopher, transvaluing our values. In both those ways, he is saying that the beginning of this story of Jesus shows us how the entire story that follows will turn our priorities upside down. And just to show that Mary has got the point, not long after the story of the angel's visit, Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and sings her song, the Magnificat, all about how God puts down the mighty and raises up the lowly. So, very basically, this beginning of the story, where Mary first appears in St. Luke's Gospel, is telling us this is going to be a story which changes your priorities, which shows you something of God's commitment to those otherwise forgotten, humiliated, helpless, those without leverage, those without status. The childless old priest in the temple, the teenage girl in the northern village, and Simeon and Anna in the temple, whom we tend to think of as rather respectable, hieratic figures. Simeon is often represented as a priest in classical paintings of the subject, but who I suspect were rather more like the sort of homeless people with large plastic bags who sit at the back of the church. These are old, presumably poor people who sit in the corners who are around all day long because there's nowhere else to be. And Simeon, this aged, unknown figure, unexpectedly emerges from the shadows to meet the Holy Family. And he picks up the child and says, translating the Greek very loosely, where have you been all my life? And now I can die happy. Profoundly poignant, vivid moment. But again, part of this picture, which St. Luke wants to leave us with in those early chapters, of the values being turned upside down. And our thoughts about where the center is being shifted to the margins. <coughs> But there's one other feature of these chapters, perhaps worth bearing in mind. And that is that although the story begins with this undistinguished old clergyman, Luke's gospel is good news for undistinguished old clergymen, it still does take place in the temple. And Simeon and Anna appear in the temple. 
And if we flick forward to St. Luke's second volume, The Acts of the Apostles, we find in the early chapters there that the first Christian community in Jerusalem meet to pray in the temple and on the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem in general and the temple in particular remain powerfully the focus of God's action because it was believed that in the temple there was a kind of overlap between heaven and earth. This was the place where earth was opened up to heaven where you recognized that the gap between heaven and earth was as thin as the curtain in front of the innermost sanctuary. So that's one more thing to put into the mix as the story begins. It's a story about the partition between heaven and earth being very thin. It's a story set in the place where heaven and earth come very, very close together. And those two mentions of the temple, the story of Zechariah, the story of Simeon and Anna, they sandwich the story of the Annunciation to Mary. And a good many commentators have noticed that again Luke is casually scattering some echoes of Hebrew scripture in what he says. Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and when she meets Elizabeth, the child leaps up inside Elizabeth's body. And Elizabeth's and Mary stays with Elizabeth for three months until the promise of the birth of John the Baptist is fulfilled and Zechariah blesses the Lord, the God of Israel. Again, if you're an attentive reader, you might just remember the story of how the Ark of the Covenant is brought back to Jerusalem, how King David leaps and dances before the Ark of the Covenant, and how the Ark of the Covenant is left for three months in the house of Obed-Edom and brings the richest possible blessing to that household. It's as if St. Luke in these chapters can't stop himself looking at his readers and saying, remind you of anything? Not too obtrusively, but almost taking for granted that people will pick up these echoes, the birth of a liberator, the spirit coming upon somebody to raise up a life that will be liberating, the Ark of the Covenant carrying the signs of God's faithfulness within it, all of that converging on this story of the beginning of Jesus's life. This is going to be a story about transvaluing values. It's going to be a story about the restoration of God's covenant, God's promise with his people, and eventually the expansion of that promise to the ends of the earth. It's going to be a story 
about where heaven and earth meet. And at the center of it, this figure of the unmarried young woman, who is going to be, it seems, the Ark of the Covenant and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson and all sorts of other things and all sorts of other people. She is going to be the point at which so much of Hebrew scripture converges for a new liberating moment. And at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, when the Apostles meet on the Mount of Olives, who is there with them but Mary and the brothers of Jesus? So that's part of what's going on in that story. Mary, it seems, matters in this particular framework. Above all, because she points to the scope, the scale of what's going to happen in Jesus. She alerts us to the ways in which Jesus' life and death and resurrection are going to be important. She tells us this is both a story continuous with what has gone before and a revolutionary moment. She tells us that the promise of God the ageless promise of God in the history of Hebrew scripture is coming to fruition. She tells us that heaven and earth are not so far apart. And at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, there she is with the apostles, praying, waiting, yet again, for the Spirit to come and to raise up in the world that community of believers who will live out the life of Jesus afresh in the life of the Christian community. Quite a lot to digest. But Luke, like the other gospel writers, means us to take our time. And just in case we've missed that, he tells us, Mary took her time to think about it. She pondered all these things in her heart. And quite clearly that pondering did take time. Bits of the Gospel story, recorded by Luke and by Matthew and Mark, suggest that there were certainly moments when Mary had no idea at all what was going on. Her pondering had hit a brick wall. And yet, after the resurrection, there she is with the disciples, waiting in faith. And that just touches on the way in which in St. John's Gospel, once again, mention of Mary and the story of Mary frames the narrative of Jesus. At the very beginning of the story, the first miracle that Jesus performs is done at his mother's urging, the wedding in Cana. His mother went to Jesus and said, they have no wine. 
Jesus said to her, again translating rather loosely, why is that my problem? And Mary, rather than arguing, goes to the servants and says, do what he tells you, and leaves it at that. As if Jesus needs to learn from Mary how to do the will of the Father. Mary nudges and prods and says, you may not think so, but it's time. And there she is at the end of the story, standing by the cross of Jesus with the disciple Jesus loves. And Jesus gives the disciple into Mary's care and Mary into the disciple's care, saying very significantly to the disciple, she is your mother now. In other words, the beloved disciple who stands for the whole body of the faithful in some way is being told to learn from Mary as the human Jesus learned from Mary how to do the will of the Father, how to be the transforming, reconciling, forgiving, miraculous presence that Jesus is in a smaller measure. There's more that could be said about the New Testament, and I wish there were more time to reflect on it, particularly on the fourth gospel. But what I've tried to do so far is simply to give you a bit of a flavor of how much is going on in these stories, which, if you like, directs our attention to the scale and the depth of what Jesus is doing. Mary is certainly there to point us to Jesus, but yet we are left in no doubt that Jesus' humanity is shaped by the reality of Mary's. She is his mother, and like any mother, she teaches her child how to be human. Jesus has a human mind, a human psyche, as well as the divine mystery that animates his entire being. And so, as a human mind, he must learn. He must learn to love. He must learn to forgive. He learns from his mother, as people do. And so, within and behind all of this, is not only that Mary points to Jesus as if from a distance, so to speak, but Mary is God's way of making this human being who is Jesus to be who he is. It leaves the focus on Jesus at the center of the story, but it does make the role of Mary crucial in taking us towards that center, towards the one who was literally part of her body and became human through her humanity. Well, I'd hoped to have a bit of time to talk more about the evolution of some aspects of the Christian tradition. But I suspect my time is coming towards an end here. 
so I'll spare you. In the great words of one of those P.G. Woodhouse stories, I'll spare you the, ex the excursus on the family life of the ancient Assyrians and cut to what I most wanted to share with you this evening, which is a poem which expresses as vividly as I've ever encountered something of what I've been trying to talk about in relation to the significance of Mary as the one whose humanity plays a key role in shaping the humanity of Jesus. It's a poem by an American poet called John Burt, B-U-R-T, and it's the third of a series of sonnets for Mary of Nazareth. And if you listen, you'll see how in this poem we are introduced to the idea of how Jesus learns how to speak and act, and to desire through Mary. He sees what Mary loves and loves it. Mary loves the Lord who has summoned her into his service. Jesus, as a human child, learns and lives into the reality which is already at the depth of his being, the reality of his unconditional love for his Father. Because he was so plain a god, so calm, riding at her heart like any child, a stirring and attentive passenger, wakeful in her wordless rush of breath, she would, she would have been amused, not terrified. What did he have in mind, she thought at nights, while patient Joseph snored and shepherds woke. It came to her at last. He didn't know. He himself would catch it up from her. What could he want except to want like her? To know what weakness is and casualty, how being done to teaches her to be, how losing love enables her to learn to make of fear her honour, and of death, her gift. Mary teaches Jesus humanity and teaches him mortality. To live in a world where love is lost, where hurt is real, and yet where it is still possible to make of fear and pain a gift which, in his life and death and resurrection, her son, of course, does. Thank you.
Well, the good news is that your talk has had a number of responses in terms of questions. The bad news is none of them are easy. So let me start with a gentle opener. Do you think the church has used Mary's story in a sexist way? And if so, how can it change? Short answer is yes, because as has so often been noted by, especially by feminist scholars in the last few decades, it's possible to present the figure of Mary as giving two incompatible ideals, virginity and motherhood, in a way which means no actual woman can live up to the full expectation of perfection. It's possible to interpret be it unto me according to thy word, in Mary's response to the angel as sanctioning a passivity and unquestioning acceptance on part of women faced with masculine aggression, and so on and so on. So yes, which is why I think it's important to excavate some of those areas I was trying to touch on this evening the way in which Mary is seen in the succession of those active liberators of God's people. And many have noted the Magnificat itself as a celebration of that radical justice which God demands from God's people. And I think also I want to hang on to that idea that the humanity, the saving humanity of Jesus doesn't come from nowhere. It is shaped by the relations in which he grows. As the great preacher and theologian Austin Farah liked to say, it was shaped by everybody from Mary to the village rabbi in Nazareth. But Mary has a very specific creative role there. So I begin, I think, just by underlining that creativity and radicality in some of what's spelled out or hinted at here in the text. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and just a question of clarification. Um, people pray to Mary. Can you explain what that's about? <laughs> people ask Mary to pray to her son. And sometimes that will express itself as a prayer to her. So... Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. We pray to Mary, we speak to her and ask her for something, but what we ask is what we would ask of any other Christian. Pray for me now and at the hour of, our, of my death. Hold us before Christ. Hold us before Christ. And the fundamental shape of any prayer to Mary is that prayer, hold us before Christ. So, yes, the, the language of asking Mary can sometimes be cast in very extravagant terms indeed. And even I, as somebody fairly used to this, occasionally find my eyebrows raised by 
the extravagance of language that can be used. But that's what it comes down to. That sort of prayer to Mary 101, hold us with Christ. Help us to see Christ and to be with Christ. One question about the motherliness of Mary. Does Mary remind us of the motherly aspect of sacrifice? And how does that affect our understanding of the cross? That is such an interesting question. Um, I think the answer is partly yes. And um, I, I did a little bit of reading a few years ago in a very remarkable 20th century Russian woman theologian, Mother Maria Skobtsova of Paris, who helped with refugee communities in Paris and was eventually murdered by the Nazis because of her protection of the Jews in Paris. Um, and Mother Maria always made a great point of motherhood itself as being theologically significant for her. She had herself been married, she'd been a mother, she'd lost two children, one in the Russian Civil War, one to disease. And she always said there is something about sacrifice which for a mother in her sort of position can never be metaphorical or abstract. And there's something that your flesh knows which others can't know. So, yes, I mean, there's a huge area there, but that's just skimming the surface of it a bit. Thank you. Um, one of our audience has said that they've never, they had never considered Mary's humanity shaping Jesus before. So thank you. And, and how far would you take that? If Jesus's humanity is real humanity, then, of course, like ours, it grows, it develops, it does so in relation. I'm not sort of compromising at all the traditional doctrine that Jesus is without sin. Nonetheless, Jesus discovers things, surely, by trial and error. I can sort of imagine Jesus toddling around in the carpenter's shop, and Mary having to say, don't touch that saw. I don't imagine that the child Jesus sort of wafted around the carpenter's shop two feet off the ground, never tempted to fiddle with the nails or the, um, or the hammers or whatever. So Jesus learns. And from whom do we learn most immediately? What's the first face we see and the first voice we are used to? Clearly, that human form and face and voice of Mary has to have a pivotal role there, especially as we see Mary puzzled and perhaps alienated, as she sometimes feels, nonetheless being utterly faithful to Jesus right through to his death and beyond. The question I wanted to ask before today's start, and that's been asked by one of the, one of the congregation, uh, the, the audience is, um, do you have any reflections on the fixation with Mary's virginity? Fixation with Mary's virginity. Yes, I mean, it's, it's an interesting fact that 
both St. Matthew and St. Luke, in talking about the miraculous conception of Jesus, are almost offhand about it. It's as if part of what they want to say is, well, again, look at the Old Testament stories. God is always doing the most extraordinary things in bringing new life about. Um, this just happens to be you know, one notch more extraordinary than usual. But there is so something almost casual about it. It's part of that focus on the miraculous newness of the Spirit, the need of the gift of the Spirit to take up the task of liberation. And Mary, as it were, stands there alone. And the aloneness is significant here in her virginity, in her unmarried condition. She doesn't take advice from any patriarchal system around her. She doesn't have anyone to support her, but she says yes, and that yes turns history around. So I think in the story in Scripture, the importance of Mary's virginity is not in itself a fixation on virginity. It's a fixation, not a fixation, but a focus on Mary's aloneness of response and the courage and creativity of that response. But as the early church got more and more interested in the, the significance of virginity, not just because they were, they were odd about sex, some of them were, but not all of them, but mostly because of that feeling that the virgin life, the uncommitted life, was a life of total commitment to the coming age. It was, in the jargon, eschatological. It was looking forward to the, you know, the radical um, difference of the kingdom of God. As all of that became more and more important, and as people began, indeed, to get a bit more um, suspicious of sex and marriage, then, yes, Mary's virginity comes increasingly into focus. But, interestingly, in the early church, so does the virginity of Jesus. Jesus is a single, unmarried man who lives the life of the kingdom, who's not committed or limited by relations here and now. And in a very um, early text from around 300, there's quite a bit about Jesus, the virgin, in the sense that Jesus is, even more than Mary, the one who stands apart from the systems of family and inheritance just to be there for the kingdom of God. But yes, there is a, an unhealthy sentimentality about that, um, a kind of displaced eroticism where Mary becomes more and more the sort of symbol of untouched young femininity in a way that's ever so slightly creepy in some devotional texts. And there again, I, I feel it's important to go back to where it starts and see the work that's doing in, in the gospel and not assume that to talk of Mary as virginal is to buy into that slightly unbalanced and slightly problematic mm. tradition in the later church. And so just to develop that a little bit, a question's arisen around reconciling the differences between the portrayal of Mary, mother of God, and Mary Magdalene within yeah. the Christian tradition, and how that might be done. Well, yes, that's another interesting one, isn't it? Um, 
because Mary Maudlin, Mary Magdalen, is by the Middle Ages identified with the sinful woman and portrayed as a converted prostitute, then it becomes all too easy to set up the sort of virgin and whore um, polarity in thinking about womanhood. There's the Virgin Mary, the clue is in the name, and there is Mary Magdalene, the converted whatever, sinner, let's just say. And that kind of doesn't help. Um, in the, again, in the very early church, apart from devotion to Mary as mother of God and ever virgin, you have certainly an interesting focus on Mary Magdalene, not as a converted sinner, but as an example in some rather fringe literature of the surprising role of women in the group around Jesus. And you have these texts where Mary Magdalene is presented as almost a kind of rival to Peter and others. Um, she, she's been the first witness of the resurrection. She's, she's been there. She knows what's going on. And from quite early, you have Mary Magdalene given the title of the Apostle to the Apostles. Because she's the one who is sent, apostled by Jesus to the rest of the apostles with the news of the resurrection. So it's, it's a richer picture than you might get from some of those medieval and later polarities that, you know, the serene childlike virgin and the um, kind of poignantly romantic repentant sinner Magdalene. There's much more going on, much more interesting stuff going on, I think, in the earlier period. But then, you know, I spent a lot of my career teaching the early church, so I'm a bit prejudiced too. <laughs> you mentioned um, paradox at the beginning of uh, the talk. Uh, so here's an easy one. Uh, so if the margins are at the center of this story, of our story, what does that mean for how we practice our faith, particularly in the Church of England? Yes. It means at least developing the habit of looking for who's not there. As I've sometimes put it, in, in any group, who's not there, who's not talking, who's not being allowed to talk, who is convinced they're not being allowed to talk, why do I think I'm allowed to talk? You know, if you, if you think about margins and centers, I think those are the sorts of practices that churches ought to be educating us in. A good, vital, prayerful Christian community, and, you know, there are a few of them around, is one that will teach people and nurture people in asking that awkward question, who's not here, who's not talking? And for those of us, people like bishops, who tend to be there and tend frequently to be talking, it's a very salutary question to have to ask. And Father Rowan, just thinking about practice, our faith in practice, you mentioned that Mary pondered her response. So where's the space for pondering in the busyness of our lives? And how do we protect pondering practices? Pondering practices, yes, that's such a good way of putting it. Because 
that is what we try to do. We leave enough room in our busy schedules, or we try to, for the time that is not dictated by having to come up with a result, having to deliver an outcome, a time where we say in effect to God, I'm here simply because I want to grow and I need to grow. And that does mean looking at the daily diary. It does mean where do I literally find that time and space which is not dominated by the outcome, by the result, by the success or failure, but where I say, I just need to sit and grow. Or indeed, paraphrasing George Herbert, I just need to sit and eat, you know, to digest. Why is Joseph removed from the story? Is that because he spoils it or? Why is Joseph removed? What, what an interesting thought. Yes. Um, he's not, of course, entirely removed. And in one of the, sorry, again, very early Christian texts from probably about 120 in the Christian era, you have quite a bit about Joseph who is represented again in Luke's style of picking up Old Testament models. Joseph is represented as, again, a sort of faithful champion of God's people who prays in the temple and who is singled out by a miracle to be the husband of Mary, who is one of the seamstresses in the temple who mends the temple curtain. There's a bit of symbolism for you. So Joseph does figure in that, and it, at the climax of this text, it actually slips into the voice of Joseph himself. They found a cave near Bethlehem for Mary to give birth. Joseph is sent off to find a midwife in the town. And as he walks along, there's a moment suddenly where everything stands still. And the passage begins, now I, Joseph, was walking, and suddenly I stopped. And I looked up, and the birds were frozen in the heavens. And I looked at the shepherd in the field, bringing a piece of bread to his mouth, and he wasn't eating. Just for a moment, everything stands still, and Joseph realizes the birth has happened. Beautiful image, but it's in the voice of Joseph. So he, he is around, but of course, Poor lamb, he hasn't got very much to do. And so he's almost always sitting on the edge of the picture. In Eastern icons, he's usually crouching in the corner in the characteristic classical pose of melancholy. <laughs> you know, he's had a long night. In many medieval pictures of the nativity, again, he's on the edge of things. And it took a while for the Roman Catholic Church, especially, to sort of dust off Joseph and bring him back as the patron saint of manual workers, as sort of honest-to-God honest laborers. And St. Joseph the worker becomes a sort of trope in Roman Catholic devotion. So it's been an up-and-down story for poor old Joseph. Um, but in, in both uh, Matthew and Luke, Joseph is again presented, it's not just the second century text, again presented 
as someone who in some way represents that continuity. Like his namesake in Genesis, he has important dreams in Matthew. And of course, like his ancestor David, importantly in Luke, he ends up in Bethlehem. So he's, he's doing a bit, of, a bit of a job in those biblical stories. But later on, certainly in a lot of the Middle Ages, he slightly fades. And then, of course, you also have the development of the idea of the Holy Family, when you need to present Mary, Joseph, and Jesus as the ideal nuclear family, which is a rather modern take on it. Complicated story, but perhaps he's doing more work in that early period than we think. I told you there are a lot of questions. I'll ask a handful more, I'm so conscious of time. One of them is uh, something, again, very close to my heart. Does, does Mary offer the possibility of humankind bearing the divine? Brilliant. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that a lot of the great spiritual teachers of the Middle Ages would say about the contemplative life was that it was a giving birth to the Word of God. And so, yes... There is a real sense in which our pondering with Mary, pondering on the gift of God, is part of the bringing to birth of the Word of God in our lives and so in the world. So yes, I think that's, that's a crucial insight. Thank you very much. And do you see her as a unifying figure? I think Mary ought to be a unifying figure because there she is, at the center of that key story about the beginnings of the narrative of Jesus. She ought not to be weaponized between Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants. She is bound in with how we understand the humanity of our Savior. And so she certainly ought to be a focus of that kind of unity. And to get to that, I think we do need to have a good and robust understanding of the humanity of Jesus, as well as the divinity of Jesus, and to see Mary's role in that. So I would hope so. I notice also that if we're talking about the interfaith dimension, I've mentioned Mary's absolute rootedness in the Jewish tradition that she inherits and embodies, and also she plays a key role in the Quran, which has, if anything, more elaborated nativity story about Jesus than the New Testament has. So there's, you know, there's overlap there to explore. Very good. Perhaps the last question I'll ask you from the audience is what does Mary mean to you? What does Mary mean to me? I like to think of her sometimes as an older sister in the family. The one who's taken on a lot of responsibility for encouraging and bringing up the younger children. I do think of her as a mother figure in the sense that I believe, like the beloved disciple, I'm put under her guidance in some way. 
And I suppose most simply, I love and enjoy and delight in the celebrating of the extraordinary vigor, splendor, diversity, mystery of that narrative about her which frames the narrative of Jesus. And, well, when in the Easter season we say and sing joy to thee, O Queen of Heaven, Alleluia, um, I think, yes, I can, I can sign up for that. Mary, her soul magnifying the Lord, her soul expanding to make room for God, that's somebody I would like as a sister and mother and friend, and I'm glad to have. <laughs> We've been very, very glad to have you. Thank you so much for today. Um, and I think we all want to say a huge thank you to Dr. Williams for a truly insightful talk, as well as the Q&A. Uh, this will live long in the memory. Thank you. Um, the consort will... Uh, close the evening by singing Victoria's Alma Redemptoris Mater. <laughs>